Again, Acts chapter 13, that's where we're going to be at this morning. If you're not already there in your Bibles or Bible app, we're going to continue our study through the book of Acts. We're going to be finishing a two-part look this morning at a study I've titled, How Being Sent Out Started Out, which we're covering in Acts chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. I said initially it was going to be through verse 13, but we're actually going to save that for next week. In part two today, we're going to be studying verses 6 through 12, but just for the context, we're going to actually start reading in verse 1 of chapter 13, and we'll read all the way through verse 12. So Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 1, it says, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So, verse 4, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, they, had, they also had John as their assistant. Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now, indeed, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time, And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. In part one last week, we considered the life of faith as we saw that the Spirit of God had called Barnabas and Saul for the work that he had for them saw how the Spirit of God sent them out, but how they weren't given the details of what that sending out was going to look like. Barnabas and Saul were sent out by the Holy Spirit. They left a thriving ministry in Antioch and were not told that they received any clear next step after that. But as they sought the Lord fully, as they trusted him completely, I believe the Lord began to impress things and places and people on their hearts. God does the same sorts of things with us oftentimes. And as I said last week, for Barnabas, who seemed to be the leader of this missionary journey initially, that place and people was where he grew up, the island of Cyprus. His heart, no doubt, was burdened for the people, the place that he came from. He wanted to see God do a radical work through his gospel there in that country. And I believe that burden became a source of direction by the Spirit of God. These men were naturally, supernaturally making decisions and taking steps while staying open and yielded 
and dependent upon the Spirit's leading. They trusted that he would lead them through both open and closed doors because understand both of those things are ways that the Lord leads us as they move forward in faith. And they began their first missionary journey in Salamis, the commercial center of the island of Cyprus, going to the synagogues of the Jews in that city and preaching the word of God, no doubt connecting the Old Testament scriptures to Jesus, preaching salvation through Jesus, all that he accomplished through his life and death and burial and resurrection and ascension, desiring their fellow Jews to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And again, we're told in verse 5 that they had John Mark as their assistant. And so with that in mind, again, just for the context, now let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says in verse 6, Now, when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. As I said last week, we're not given any details of any sort of fruit, any sort of results from their time preaching the word of God in the synagogues there before moving on. But again, the fruitfulness of something is not always seen outwardly in the ways that we expect or desire it to look. They were faithful to preach the word of God. So we've got to believe that even without us reading any reports of people getting saved, that God was using them, using them and that his spirit continued working in hearts long after they moved on. Now, from Salamis on the eastern coast, they traveled roughly 100 miles across the island to the western coast to the city of Paphos. And just for a bit of his kind of geography and historical sort of information, Paphos was the capital of Cyprus at that time, and it was known as really the political and religious center of the country, and it was known for its worship of Venus, the goddess of love. It was an exceedingly immoral city. In fact, one uh, uh, report that I read said that at One point, at some point in a woman's life, every female that lived in the city of Paphos would have to serve at least once as a temple prostitute. This was the environment of the city of Paphos. This was the environment that Barnabas and Saul and John Mark were coming into. This wasn't a a city where everything was clean and tidy and everybody was just ready to receive the gospel because They all grew up in church and they all kind of knew what was right and they were just really moral people. No, this was like just a free-for-all. You know, I think about how it could be easy for us in our desire to, you know, kind of see things change to become a little reclusive at times when we see things that are not in line with a godly life. We might find ourselves becoming repulsed by the things that are actually supposed to be things that that draw us to other people to bring the gospel so that those people that are in bondage to sin can find life in Jesus Christ. You ever find yourself feeling a little 
graded by the things that you see when they're sinful? Well, there's a, there's a good part of that. We should have sort of a, a, a desire for righteousness. We're to hunger and thirst for righteousness, but we're to not at the same time let that desire for righteousness keep us from sharing the gospel that'll bring people into right relationship with Jesus Christ. Yeah, I don't know if this even needs to be stated, but things aren't getting better. As we look at the scene of our country, as we see how the culture is shifting as we see that the desire to just live without any sort of acknowledgement of God or his word or, or any sort of righteous standard is, as that's being left behind. And you and I, as the people of God, have this desire to live right before the Lord. We, we, we have to remember that we're not to wait for other people to clean themselves up before they get on board with God's plan for their life. When I think about the disciples here as they traveled in their missionary journeys, one of the things that this reminds me of is that they didn't wait for people to come to them. And I don't know about you, but it can be easy for me sometimes to to kind of like find myself drift into a position of mind where I'm kind of like feeling like, well, God will bring them to me. God will bring about those conversations to me when he's ready. And here's the thing, God's always ready. And there's this desire in us to kind of like just be safe and secure and everything's good and I'm comfortable, but... This wasn't a comfortable sort of situation for them, no doubt. They're in a new area. They're around an exceedingly immoral city. They're no doubt seeing some pretty immoral things centered around the worship of Aphrodite. And yet God called them to this place. And now here they are seeking to be ambassadors for the Lord. They were faithful to preach the word and the spirit of God was working. They had a proconsul in the island of Cyprus, which means that this sort of setup was one that was initiated by the Roman Senate. A proconsul was the same as a Roman governor. He'd be the equivalent of Pilate in Jerusalem. But the reason he was called a proconsul is because that island didn't require a standing army to keep it under Rome's control. This man was a powerful man in that city, in that country. It was in Paphos that they came across a sorcerer and false prophet of Jewish ethnicity named Bar-Jesus. That word Bar means son of. So this man was going by the name son of Jesus or Literally in the Hebrew, it would be son of salvation. This man had attached himself to the Roman proconsul, Sergius Paulus, who we're told was an intelligent man. And just so we're all on the same page with what sorcery was back in this point in time, David Gutzik said this about sorcerers. He said, in the Bible, sorcery is associated with the occult, 
magical practices and often with the taking of mind and mood-altering drugs. Whatever real power, it was from Satan, not God. In the ancient world, there was a class of astronomers and scientists known as magi. We see them in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. They came to bring gifts to baby Jesus. But local wizards and sorcerers also took the title. He says they used it to prey on the ignorance and superstitions of the common people. Now, it was the proconsul who called for Barnabas and Saul because we're told that he sought, and that word sought speaks of a diligence. He sought to hear the word of God, which tells us that Barnabas and Saul likely already had been preaching the word of God as they traveled from the other end of the island and had already been preaching there in Paphos, which caused word to get to the proconsul about them. Sergius Paulus no doubt had heard reports about these two men and their preaching, which motivated him to call the two men to hear them preach. It, it seems God was already doing something in the proconsul's heart in preparing and softening him. A stirring was happening where he, he wanted to hear the word of God and he called for the right men to come and share the word with him. But stuff's about to get weird in the next couple verses. Look again at verse eight. It says, but Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Luke tells us that the sorcerer bar Jesus was also known as Elymas, which could be translated the wise one. And this Elymas withstood them. He opposed, he resisted, he positioned himself against Barnabas and Saul, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But this isn't the first run-in a disciple of Jesus has had with a sorcerer in the book of Acts. If you remember in Acts chapter 8, we learned about a situation where there was this sorcerer named Simon who wanted to purchase the power of God that he saw at work in the apostles. And he showed himself to not be a true convert but just someone who was attracted to power that would continue to give him authority and control and influence in the lives of others. And where Peter, we're told in that section, rebuked him strongly, but there was no evidence of Simon ever repenting. Now here we find a different run-in, but it seems Elymas was not only passing himself off as a as a sorcerer, but also a, a prophet who could speak for God or maybe just the pagan deities of their island. No doubt using his self-professed role as a prophet to give greater weight to his words and greater control in the life of the proconsul. Elymas had found an inn with Sergius Paulus, likely becoming an influential and trusted counselor in his life. And he saw Barnabas and Saul as a threat to his power and control in the proconsul's life. Elymas had already been doing everything he could to trick and deceive the proconsul and, and keep him in the dark and under his influence, but everything about him was false, even his name. This man was no son of Jesus. He was no son of salvation. He was seeking to turn, that word turn meaning to cause to wander or to pervert or to mislead. 
the proconsul away from the faith, desiring to keep him from turning in faith to Jesus Christ. But Elymas is about to be exposed here in the next verses. Let's read verses 9 through 11. It says in verse 9, Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind, not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Right away now in verse nine, we see Luke noting that Saul, his Hebrew name, was also called Paul, which was his Greek name. Not an uncommon thing for Jewish people in that day to have both a Hebrew name and a Greek name. We see this with John Mark. We see it with how Cephas was called Peter when his name was, his Hebrew name was Simon. But this was a marked change in how Saul is going to be called or known throughout the rest of the book of Acts and the New Testament, now going by Paul, which better fit the ministry he would have moving forward in reaching Gentiles with the gospel. In contrast with Elymas, who, was, who, who opposed the gospel and who sought to turn the proconsul away from the faith, clearly being influenced and empowered by the demonic realm, we see that Paul was filled with and influenced by and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God as he looked intently at Elymas and was about to confront him. And guys, this is super, super important. That before Paul spoke these words of confrontation, before he spoke these words of rebuke, that Paul, we're told, was filled with the Holy Spirit. This is important because it helps us to understand that the things that followed were not flowing from a place of frustration. Because if, if we weren't told first that Paul was filled with the Spirit and then we saw him saying, you son of the devil! We'd be like, okay, Paul's losing it. He's angry. He's about to flip over a table. You know, like... <laughs> Paul's about to kick butt and take names. Like we, we would maybe be drawn to our own conclusion about what was kind of motivating Paul in the moment. Because I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to find myself wanting to be motivated by the Spirit of God. But when I look back at actually what was in my heart when I responded to something, when I acted upon something, it, it wasn't actually the Spirit of God. I would like to say that it was. I'd like to believe that it was, but in my heart of hearts, before the Lord, if I'm being honest, it, it's just my own flesh responding. My own frustration, my own anger at something. And I think on one hand, even if Paul was not filled by the Spirit. I think a lot of us would want to give Paul sort of an, an excuse in here. 
Because we would say, well, this guy was leading someone astray. He had every right to do that. We could say, well, well, this guy was perverting other people. He was keeping people from the Lord. And we could, we could kind of give Paul a, a pass to have sort of a fleshly reaction in this moment if that was the case. But I want us to understand something as we consider Paul's response here. That nothing good, nothing fruitful, nothing with any eternal value ever comes when our flesh is what is calling the shots. Never once. You know, it's interesting that when we're told by Paul that, you know, everyone's going to, all of us as believers, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And our works are going to be shown on that day. And the things that are wood, hay, and stubble, those things are going to burn. But the things that are, you know, the gold and the silver, the precious jewels, those things will remain. And and we think about that. and And I wonder for us, Lord, what's that actually going to look like when we stand before you one day? It's not, a, it's not the judgment seat of keeping us out of heaven. It is a, it's a reward seat judgment, but still the purifying, flaming eyes of Jesus are going to see through what was really motivating our lives when we did things here, when we interacted with people here, when we responded to things now in this life. And I wonder even for myself how many things I'm going to find burning up before the eyes of the Lord that were, that were me. And they weren't the Lord. It was me being motivated by me and not by the Spirit of God. I would like to think and I, and I hope and I pray that all of it will be the precious jewels and gold and those things that will endure. But this reminds me, and it should remind us, guys, how important it is that we are being filled with the Spirit of God. Because whether it's opposition, whether it's unrighteousness, whether it's just seeing the kookiness of our world, whether it's trying to filter all the things that we're just unclear about, it doesn't make sense, and we, we don't really even know what to believe or think, or it's somebody that just rubs us the wrong way. We need to be filled with the Spirit of God our lives are not really going to be found honoring God. If our flesh is what's motivating and driving and influencing our decisions and our thoughts and our actions and our words. No doubt the Spirit of God had Paul some really, had him say some really hard things. He confronted things with truth, clearly here. But how many times have we confronted things, confronted people with truth, 
but the Spirit of God was not the one leading us to do those things. As we live out these lives of faith, saved people who the Spirit of God is desiring to send and empower each day, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Check out what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 18. He said to a body of believers in the city of Ephesus, he said, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. I mean, this was written almost 2,000 years ago, but couldn't it have just been written to us right now? Why would he tell them to not walk as fools? Because you and I have the propensity to be foolish, to do foolish things and say foolish things, to believe foolish things. We need to be reminded that there's, a, there's to be a, a, a circumspectness, a, a carefulness to our walk. That there's supposed to be wisdom that characterizes our lives. Because the days that we're living in are evil. They're not any less evil than they were when Paul wrote this. You and I need to redeem the time. we got to make the best use of the time that we've been given. Not living for us, but living for the Lord, understanding what His will is. Not giving ourselves to intoxication, not being filled with other lesser things that are going to leave us feeling empty, but being filled with the Spirit of God. It's a feeling that you and I will never regret filling ourselves with. Evil days necessitate us being spirit-filled saints who glorify and point others to Jesus. Paul was filled with the Spirit. Again, this was not coming from a place of frustration, wasn't a fleshly reaction. He was influenced and controlled and empowered by the Spirit of God. He was an instrument in the hand of the Spirit as he now confronted this sorcerer and being filled with the Holy Spirit of God. He called Elymas out that he was full of all deceit, treachery, craftiness. This guy was trapping other people. That he was full of all fraud, that word fraud meaning wickedness and villainy and dishonesty. Instead of being a son of Jesus or a son of salvation, he was actually a son of the devil. He was an enemy of all righteousness. He was against everything that was right. And that he did not cease perverting or making crooked the straight ways of the Lord. You know, oftentimes in the New Testament, the strongest words of rebuke are spoken to those who are hindering others from coming to Jesus and believing in Jesus. 
whether it was the Pharisees or a false teacher or someone causing others to stumble in sin. You know, it's one thing for a person to decide that they're not going to believe and follow Jesus, but it's another thing entirely when that person decides that they're going to disrupt and distract and deter others from believing in and following Jesus too. Our God takes that very seriously. And here we see that the Spirit of God uses Paul to deal with this sorcerer really strongly as Paul pronounced that the hand of the Lord was going to be upon Elymas and that he was going to be blind and not see the sun for a time. And in doing this, Elymas was going to lose his grip of control and influence in the proconsul's life. The Lord intervening so that Sergius Paulus would be drawn to a place of salvation and, and not be hindered by Elymas's opposition any longer. But I want us to understand that this wasn't a condemning sort of judgment that had eternal permanence attached to it. Notice that the blindness was only going to be temporary. And I believe this was rooted in the grace and mercy of God, not just towards Sergius Paulus, but also towards Elymas. Yes, the, the Lord was using Paul in this moment to interrupt and stop Elymas's influence in Sergius Paulus's life and pre- preventing him from turning in faith to Jesus. But I also believe that God wanted to use the physical blinding to cause Elymas and his spiritual eyes to be opened so that he'd repent and come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this blinding should also remind us of what happened to Saul when he was on a path of destruction to destroy Jesus's church just years earlier. How Jesus met him and blinded him in order that he would be humbled and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. How he had to be led by hand into Damascus in his state of blindness and how God used that whole situation to deal with and remove the spiritual blindness that had existed in Saul's heart. I believe Saul's pronouncement of blindness here, although it was bold and severe because the salvation of the proconsul was at stake, it was a pronouncement of blindness that was rooted in compassion for the spiritual state of Elymas and a desire to see him brought into the kingdom of God and snatched off of the road leading to destruction and an eternity in hell. And once Paul gave his spirit-filled pronouncement of disciplinary judgment, immediately a dark mist fell on Elymas. He wandered around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. But sadly, we don't read any sort of follow-up on whether he ever repented or not. The hand of the Lord had come upon him, not in a positive way as we've seen elsewhere In the book of Acts, mercy had been extended to him. I mean, come on, God could have just struck him dead, but instead he was giving him a chance to humble himself. And though we don't know what happened with him after this, we're going to see the powerful impact this had 
on the proconsul's life in our final verse, verse 12. So look at verse 12 with me. It says, Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This man had already been seeking truth. I mean, he was the one who summoned Barnabas and Saul to come and preach the word of God to him. But he had been hindered by Elymas who wanted to keep whatever measure of power and control and influence he had in the proconsul's life. But after now hearing them preach the word in spite of Elymas's opposition, hearing Paul filled with the spirit discerning and revealing what Elymas was all about, and declaring that judgment upon him, we're told that Sergius Paulus believed when he had saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And notice the proconsul's astonishment, his amazement that led him to believe was not in the powerful supernatural work of Elymas being blinded. No, it was in the teaching of the Lord. It was what Barnabas and Paul had told him about Jesus that left him astonished, that left him amazed, that brought him to a place of belief, of faith in Jesus Christ. And now after all the traveling, all the preaching, all the opposition that they had just faced that started at the first part of their missionary journey, a Gentile Roman proconsul has been saved and brought into the family of God by grace through faith in Jesus. And I want us to understand and be clear about something as we consider this whole section of verses that even though Sergius Paulus is the only person recorded to believe in Jesus up to this point in their missionary journey, that that one person's soul was worth it. Isn't it funny the things that we get disappointed by and discouraged by? I mean, we could read this and go, that's it? Just the one guy? That's all that? I mean, no one... They preached, they preached and preached. They went to all these different synagogues, no doubt preaching a hundred miles worth of preaching across the island. The only person is this one. I mean, in our own sort of human reactions, we can look at these sorts of things sometimes and kind of get disappointed. But listen, it wasn't a bummer or a letdown that only one person got saved because someone got saved. Jesus in Luke 15, he gives three different examples of something lost being found. He talks about the one sheep out of the hundred that was lost and the shepherd brings them back and he calls his friends and everyone together and they rejoice over that one sheep that came back. He gives the example of the woman who had 10 coins and she lost one of them and she found it and she gathered her friends and told them to rejoice with her because that one coin had been found. And then he gave the example of the prodigal son who had everything and then squandered everything because he didn't think it was sufficient to be a son in his father's house. And how that father rejoiced when the son came back from prodigal living and he put the robe on him and he put the ring on him and he killed the fatted calf and they had a huge 
party because God sees value in just the one. We look around us. All around us, there's the one. In our lives, we got the one. And I think sometimes we look at all of it and we don't even know how to reach the one. We don't even know where to start. There's all these people that need to hear the gospel. There's all these people that are going to hell. You want to save them. You gave your son so that no one would perish without you. What do I do? And then we get discouraged on top of that in our humanness because maybe we're trying to do the work of the Lord, but we're not seeing the results that we want to see. I want to tell you today, look, there's a fresh work of his spirit that he's wanting to do in each of our hearts to revive us because some of us have maybe just become so discouraged or so disillusioned with the state of where things are in our world that we've just kind of thrown our hands up and we've just sort of like given up. You can't. That one was worth it. But listen, even if there hadn't been any recorded moments of someone getting saved on the island of Cyprus, them preaching the gospel, whether anyone believed or not, made sure that it wasn't a wasted or fruitless or failed trip. The only failure would have been if they had never preached the gospel at all. The only failure would have been if they had never taken the step of faith at all to go and see what God might do. You know, sometimes we assume what God wants to do. Sometimes we assume what God can do. But guys, I believe there are so many things that God wants to do that we just don't ever even give him the chance to do. We think about how this trip started out for Barnabas and Saul. Didn't start out with great revival breaking out everywhere, but it did start out with faithful individuals who loved and worshiped Jesus and wanted others to know him. These men not depending upon themselves, but upon the spirit of God. Facing opposition, not shying away from it. And I love it. God showed up in power. He shut down their opposition and he brought one person to salvation. And I believe for us, there's so much for us to take away from all of this. I believe there's so many ways that God wants to challenge and encourage us. 
I'm going to have Sherry come back up. As I said last week, if we've been saved, we've been sent. Listen, there's going to be opposition as we seek to live by faith. It's going to happen. It's going to be opposition when we seek to share Jesus and his gospel with others. We have a spiritual enemy who wants to keep people blinded to the truth, in bondage to sin. So that those people never come to faith in Jesus. And listen, you and I as ambassadors for Jesus are a threat to the kingdom of Satan. But you and I are the ones that have been brought out of the darkness. You and I are the ones who have received Jesus' salvation. We have the light and life and hope of Jesus in us to bring to others. Opposition is going to come, but our God is greater. Like Paul, if we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit, if we're going to be effective at all for the kingdom of God in this world, he has what we need to fulfill what he's called us to do, but we've got to come to him and ask him to fill and empower us with his spirit. But maybe today, for some of us, the thing that's keeping us from being filled with the spirit is that we're filling ourselves with other things, lesser things. God's going, I want to fill you. I want to do a fresh work in you, but you got to let go of some of these other things. There's other things that you've been allowing to be poured into your life that don't belong and those things aren't going to mix. Our God is a jealous God. His spirit yearns within us jealously. I want to encourage us today to come once again to the Lord and say, God, fill me. God, give me boldness for you. And Lord, if there's anything in there that doesn't belong, if there's stuff that I've been filling myself with that doesn't belong, Lord, remove that. Get rid of that thing, Lord. And if he shows you things that the right response is not to sweep it under the rug and pretend like he didn't show it to you. The right response is to confess that thing to the Lord and to repent, to turn away from it. I believe God wants to do something in these evil days. And you and I need to be filled with the Spirit to be those people that He wants to use to reach others. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. God, we thank you for the example of Paul and Barnabas, Lord. God, I, I actually thank you that their trip didn't turn out the way we would have expected it to. <laughs> because if it always just was awesome and everything worked out great, then when we faced opposition, we would feel like maybe secondhand Christians or just like we were doing something wrong. But God, help us to see, Lord, that God, even in all of our frailties, Lord, even with our moments of failure, that God, you're wanting to do something with us, Lord. You're wanting to work in and through us. And Lord, if there's things this morning 
that we've allowed to fill our lives that don't belong, Lord, this morning, show us those things, Lord. Reveal them to us, God, that we could turn away from those things. We could confess those things to you, Lord God, that sin wouldn't have any place in our lives, God, that compromise wouldn't have any place in our lives, Lord God. Fill us with your spirit, Lord God. Give us boldness. Lord, any sort of timidity, Lord, remove it. Lord, give us just a a strong confidence in you, Lord. God, give us your eyes to see lost people, Lord. Give us your heart of compassion. Lord, that we would not shy away from people and all their brokenness and all their baggage, but that, God, we would, in love, Lord, press in and push towards those people, God, that we would seek to be, Lord, the light that you called us to be in this world that would draw others to a saving knowledge of you. God, use us in these days, Lord, in these evil days, Lord, help us to not live foolishly, but wisely. God, that our lives would honor you. Our lives would point others to you. Look, if you're here this morning and you've not just first asked Jesus to be your Savior and your Lord, maybe you've never made that decision for yourself. Maybe you grew up knowing about the Lord. Maybe you've lived a life of skepticism and doubt about the Lord. I don't know where you're at this morning, but know this morning that Jesus died for you. He gave up his life that's so that you could have life. He took your and my sin so that we could be forgiven of our sin and cleansed of all unrighteousness. He gave up his life so that we could have the promise of eternal life. And this morning, the only thing he's asking of you is just to turn towards him in faith, to repent of your sin. That means to turn away from your sin. I want to give you that opportunity this morning. If that's anybody here this morning and you want to make a decision for Jesus Christ, would you would you stand where you're at? I know it's a bold thing to ask, but the Bible says if we confess him before men, Jesus said if we confess him before men that he will confess us before the Father and all of the angels. Is that anybody here this morning you want to Receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. Maybe this morning there's somebody joining us online and you're in that position and I just encourage you to say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And Jesus, I want you to save me. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. Make me right in the eyes of the Father. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross. I believe that you rose from the grave. And Jesus, I repent of my sin this morning. And I turn to you in faith. Jesus, I put my trust in you.
be my savior, be my Lord, be my God, be my friend. Fill me with your spirit. Would you help me live for you? I just encourage you as you make that decision this morning and the Bible says that you will be saved. That the angels in heaven rejoice over one that comes into the kingdom. And Lord, this morning as we respond to your word, God, we just want to have our minds fixed upon you, Lord, as we take the communion elements, as we remember your body that was broken and your blood that was shed. Lord, as we sing these songs of, of, of praise, Lord, in response, God, would you, Lord, just continue to move in our hearts, continue to, to move in our midst. Lord, we thank you. We love you. We pray these things, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.